All right, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to go through verses 7 through 16 this morning. And one of the most popular sections of any bookstore is uh, the how-to book section. You go in and learn how to do all kinds of things. And nowadays, you only have to go to the bookstore. We go to YouTube and say, how to overhaul my engine, how to cut my son's hair. These are things you might how-to. And, uh, and so quickly, we can learn how to do things. You may be curious, well, how do I overhaul my engine? And you could even look up a how-to video on how to overhaul your engine while you're sitting here in the worship center. and Everybody will think you're reading your Bible. Man, he's really reading. We'll know. We'll know. How does Jesus grow his church? How does Jesus, if you had to look up a how-to video and how Jesus grows his church, what's the how-to video look like on that one? What, what kind of handy book would you get? Well, how does Jesus grow his church? Well, that is, in fact, what uh, the Bible talks about here in the passage we're in this morning. And so we're going to take a few minutes here this morning. I said, how does Jesus grow his church? What we, should we expect him to do to grow the body of Christ, both uh, as individuals and as a body together, that we might be more and more like Christ uh, as we see the day approaching that his, he will return? So we're going to look at three ways that Jesus grows his church. Look with me again at verses 7 through uh, 10 of Ephesians 4. How does Jesus grow his church? First of all, Jesus gives gifts. Jesus gives gifts. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us. Everyone who is in Christ has been given grace by Christ and has been a given a gift according to the grace of Christ. So Jesus grows his church by giving each and every one of us a gift of his grace, not just grace generically, but a gift to be able to use uh, the power of the Spirit and the grace of God to minister to those around us. Each one of us has what we might call a spiritual gift. But what are these gifts like? Look what he describes here in verse 8. He says, each one of us has a gift according to the grace of Christ, and he makes this description. It says, Jesus ascended on high, and he gave gifts to men, reminding us that he ascended because he had already descended. So what he wants to draw our attention to is the, the rhythm of Christ's ministry to us. Jesus' ministry is characterized by humiliation. This is described in more detail in another passage of Scripture in Philippians 2, verse 4. This is what the Bible says there about Jesus' ministry to us in Philippians uh, 2, 4. I'm going to start in verse 5. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, though he was uh, in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but instead he emptied himself, he took on the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of man, he was found in human form, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, and even to death on the cross. So the rhythm of Christ's ministry is this, he is God. And so what he does is he humbles himself and he comes to earth. And he builds on his humiliation over and over again. He doesn't say uh, he humbled himself and came to earth as a king. No, he came to earth as a man. It's like, oh, okay. And then he builds on that. He came on earth as a man who was a servant. Oh, okay, well, that's pretty humiliating. No, you don't understand. He came and he came to earth as a man, as a servant, who was obedient until he died. Oh, gee, that's awful. How could it possibly get any worse? I'll tell you how it could get worse. He came as a man, as a servant, and died, but not any death. He died on a cross. Oh, that's terrible. 
there's nothing more humiliating now. The rhythm of Christ's ministry is one where he was exalted and he lowered himself and was humiliated. The means of his redemption and his victory over sin was through lowness, humiliation. He redeemed us by coming not just merely down to us, but going below us. He humbled himself to be the lowest of the low. There's no one lower. His redemption was not just a a dispassionate rescue. You can imagine somebody maybe is stranded on an island, and so therefore a Coast Guard general in some office in wherever Coast Guards have their office. I was going to say Washington, D.C., but I don't even know now that I think about it. He makes a phone call. There's a guy on an island. Why doesn't somebody go and rescue that guy? He shouldn't be stuck on an island. So the aircraft goes out, and they pick up the guy and brings it back. What does the guy in the office care? Does he care? No, he's, he's some guy in an office. He dispatched the helicopter, and they saved him. This is not what Jesus did. Guy's on an island. He swims out to the island. So his, his, his rescue of us is not an aloof, dispassionate, okay, I fine, I'll save you because you really got yourself in a mess. He humbly, and in fact, not just humbly, but in humiliation, dives to the bottom to redeem us in a way that can only be described as close and intimate. This is the nature of his grace. This is the nature of his redemption. Close, intimate, humble, even below us. In fact, if we could have chosen a different kind of redemption, we would have. Because this is low. This is humble. And so what the Bible is telling us over back in, over in Ephesians chapter 4 is the gifts that he gives are, is according to this same kind of grace. He gives us grace to exert his power through the Spirit to serve others to connect with others, to worship God by engaging with others in their walk with the Lord. His grace comes to us because he is the conquering hero, but the humbled conquering hero. He gives us his gifts, not according to our deservedness, but according to his ability to conquer. How good did Jesus conquer? Really good. Let's just look at the psalm that Paul refers to here in Ephesians chapter 4. It's Psalm 68. This is what it says. There was a big enemy of God gathered against him. And he says this in Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. This is their way of saying, you can't beat him. Nowadays, you say, well, big deal, a bunch of chariots. Well, just pretend it says aircraft carriers. The aircraft carriers of the Lord are twice 10,000. You can't beat them. There's too many. How big of a conquering hero is this conquering hero? He can't be stopped, even though his victory was achieved through humiliation. And this is the nature of his heroism. He comes, and he does not just want to defeat and destroy Satan and sin and death. He wants to do so, showing sin and death and Satan, I can crush you in my most humiliated way. This is the way he wanted to have his victory. This is the way God achieves the greatest uh, glory for himself. 
He has complete strength, complete might, complete power, and a complete and total crushing victory. This is a trite illustration, so I apologize in advance. But sometimes little boys will buy these posters of their favorite basketball players. LeBron James, Clyde Drexler. I mean, does anybody still have a Drexler? Clyde the Glide, I mean, come on. Okay, he was good. Everybody says, you know what? You don't want to be in one of those posters. The guy getting dunked over. Because every poster you see a guy dunking, you know, Clyde Drexler dunking over somebody with his legs up all funny. And then you don't want to be that guy who's getting dunked over, right? What we tend to do in the humiliation of Christ is we see him on the cross and we think he's the one getting dunked over. No, he's destroying every enemy in that moment. There is no one on the cross in more control than Christ himself in that moment. When did he die? When he decided, according to God's purposes, it was time to die. Oh, God, I give up my spirit to you. Did, did the Romans kill Jesus? No, give me a break. Couldn't, Romans couldn't kill Jesus if they wanted to. Jesus gave up his life willingly and destroyed all his enemies and achieved the greatest glory through the greatest humiliation. He's saying, in like kind, I give you the grace of gifts. I'm going to give you the glory of achieving spiritual victory in the lives of others and in the body of Christ through power that comes through humble service. Power that comes through humbly putting yourself other, under others and serving others. The rhythm of God's victory is humble service where we put others above ourselves. We see this throughout the Bible. There's a fantastic story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 7. The Syrians have surrounded the, the people of God, the city uh, of God. And, and there's four people with leprosy outside the city gate. They won't let them in because they have leprosy. Outside the city are the Syrians who are going to kill everybody. The city is, in fact, starving to death. The four uh, lepers decide, you know what? We can go in the city, and they'll kill us because we have leprosy. We can go to the Syrians, and they're going to kill us. Either way, we're dead. So let's go see the Syrians. They'll probably kill us quicker. They get out to the Syrian camp, and they discover God had sent a spirit of fear on the Syrians... The Syrians had all fled. And now four lepers are plundering the camp of the Syrians, the most powerful military in the world at the time. And they're taking stuff and hiding it. And finally, they decide when it's almost morning, they say, you know what, we should tell the people about this. God has plundered his uh, great enemy with four lepers. And so they go and tell the city, and the city comes out, and everybody gets food, and the city is delivered. And this is exactly how Jesus likes to work. In humiliation, have complete victory and glory to conquer his enemies. And that same kind of ministry is what he wants to have in each one of us because the gifts he gives us is according to his grace, which is humble service. Frankly, the biblical way of saying it, we should say humiliated service. But that sounds terrible. But Jesus redefined humiliation. So gifts, the gifts that we receive then by God, and each one of us receives gifts according to God's grace, the gifts that are given us are given in light of the massive victory that Jesus had on the cross. 
Jesus gives each one of us gifts that we're to use to accomplish his purpose in the kingdom of God. Just one quick question before we move on to the next, next part of this. God gives each one of us gifts according to his grace. Would we turn up our nose at God's gifts? We certainly wouldn't turn up our nose at his redemption. All of us want forgiveness. All of us want freedom from shame. But then as a result of our new life, he gives us gifts of his grace to serve others. Would we turn up our nose at his gifts? Would we despise it? This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 4. By Romans chapter 4, I mean Romans chapter 2, obviously. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Would we presume on the kindness of God? who has died a humiliated death to provide for us a gift by his spirit to, to do what he has called each one of us to do? And would we presume on his kindness and say, oh God, that's such a great kindness that you have in fact given me personally a gift by which I can serve your kingdom. But you know, I've got a lot going on. I mean, I'm just, it's, I'm just swamped this life. Maybe the next one. Would we presume on God's kindness? Would we despise his good gifts? that he's given us. How Jesus grows his church is number one, Jesus gives each one of us gifts according to his grace, which is grace that was humiliated, that is grace that serves others and the purpose of God's kingdom. Now you might imagine a little boy opening up a present, a birthday present, and he opens it up and it's a baseball bat. Many little boys will get a baseball bat for their birthday. If you're lucky, it'll be one of those plastic ones to start out. What will happen by nature of the forces of, of the world when you give a little boy a baseball bat? He will hit his brother over the head with it. That is what will happen. I wouldn't even prevent it. Just get it out of the way. Just let him do it. He's going to hit him over the head, and then what are you going to uh, calmly, kindly say to your son? That's not what that's for. That's for hitting a baseball, his head looked just like a baseball. <laughs> that's not what that's for. So the question is, if God gives us good gifts according to his grace and according to the rhythm of his ministry, what are the gifts and what are they for? What are these gifts that he gives and what are they for? God grows his church. Jesus grows his church by giving good gifts. And verses 11 through 14 of Ephesians 4, Jesus desires through the use of these gifts maturity maturity look again at Ephesians 4 11 through 14 he gave the apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers and this is just a sampling this isn't all of the gifts that might be given and here in verses 12 and 13 we see several purpose phrases look I'm just going to highlight them quickly and you can scan them and if you want to underline them you're welcome to Verse 12, he gives the gifts to equip the saints. Do you see that? He gives the, the gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, do you see that purpose there? For the building up of the body of Christ. He gives the gifts there at the beginning of verse 13 to attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So he gives gifts that we might attain to the unity of Christ. 
He gives us these gifts that we might have knowledge of the Son of God. Continue on, he gives us these gifts at the end of verse 13, to, that we might have mature manhood. Again, at the end of verse 13, he gives us these gifts that we might measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, that we might be like Jesus. I want to point out something that's very, very important in this passage. There, it doesn't show up in the English the way it would in the original. Sometimes what you might say is you would say, I want to use my gift to serve the Lord. And so therefore, we should use our gift to serve the Lord. So what I'm doing is we're applying an individual truth to a bunch of individuals, and we would use the plural to do that. Plural means more than one, I think. That's not what he's doing here. He is using we to say that we as a body might be mature, that we as a body might be full of the knowledge of Christ, that we as a body might be built up and might be equipped. What he's saying here is the gifts of God to the ind- that he puts in the individual is not for the individual. The gifts that God gives are for the body of believers. If you know somebody that graduates from medical school, so you do the normal thing you would buy, you'd buy them what? A stethoscope. That seems like the appropriate thing you would do. Congratulations on spending $200,000 on college. I'll buy you a $10 stethoscope. It would be bizarre if they only used that stethoscope to listen to their own heart. Wouldn't you find that? How was work today? Yeah, I listen to my heart all day. I'm doing great. That is not what that thing is for. It is to be as cold as humanly possible. I think they have a freezer. I think they do. Some doctors in here, you you know you do. (laughs) Take a deep breath. How could I not? (laughs) You just put a zero-degree Kelvin instrument on me. Okay, there's the science nerds. You know what that is. Okay. So the gifts are not given to us as individuals. It's given that we might exercise our gifts on the body of Christ. And frankly, he's not even saying exercise our gifts to other individuals. He's intentionally saying exercising your gifts to the benefit of the body of Christ. The gifts that Jesus gives are not given to you, so you feel good that Jesus gave you a gift. You should feel good that Jesus gave you gifts by his Spirit, but that's not why. He gave it that it might be exercised on the body of Christ, and the body of Christ might be built up, might be equipped, might have knowledge of the Son of God, might have unity, might have maturity, might have stature. This is what Jesus desires, not merely for us as individuals, but for the body as a whole. We see more of these gifts discussed over in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, you're welcome to turn there if you want. I'm just going to summarize it. It's too much to read. I'm beginning in verse 3. But the Bible says this about some of the gifts that God gives his believers. Romans 12, 3. Uh, I say by God's grace, don't think of yourself more highly than, you're, than you should. But we are one body and have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we're members of one another, and we have gifts that differ according to the grace that God gave us. And here's a list of some of the things. Again, a sampling. If prophecy, then you should prophesy according to your faith. If your gift is service, 
then you should serve. If your gift is teaching, then you should teach. The one whose gift is exhortation, exhort. The one whose gift is contributing money, then contribute generously. The one whose gift is leading, then lead with zeal and energy. The one who has the gift of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. So much fun to have one person with the gift of exhortation and a person with the gift of mercy and lock them in a room together. One person will be yelling at the other person for not being strong enough, and the person with the gift of mercy will be saying, oh, bless your heart. And they'll do that forever. So these are the gifts. He's saying, here are some of the gifts, a sampling of some of the gifts that you have been given, and how God has moved in you, how he has used your temperament and your skills and the supernatural work of the Spirit in your heart. He says, here are the gifts you may have. But then do it, he said. I mean, it's not a real complicated. If your gift is, is service, then serve. If, if your gift is giving, then give. If your gift is teaching, then teach. If it's ex- exhorting, exhort. We all have many different functions. We're not all functioning the same way, and we have all been gifted in different ways by the Spirit. And the aim is, if I use my spiritual gifts and you use your spiritual gifts in order to serve one another in the body of Christ, the body of Christ will be moved to maturity and will be equipped to accomplish God's work in the kingdom of God. And we will know Christ and be full of his fullness. Another place where we see the spiritual gifts discussed in detail is over in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 beginning in verse 8. Again, we're just going to summarize this very quickly as a way of just sort of good exercise for you later would be to jot down Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. They're the same number. I don't know if you noticed that. That's how I always remember them. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. You can read through them later in detail about the gifts of the Spirit. Here are some things. Again, some more samplings of what the Spirit uh, does in the lives of believers. For to one, this is verse 8 of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another an utterance of knowledge, uh, to another faith uh, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, uh, to another the ability to distinguish uh, between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues, that is, languages. To another, the interpretation of those uh, tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as the Spirit determines. We talked about this a little bit last week. You might have two folks who are given the gift of teaching. And, And like Apollos, he can get up and read the phone book, and people love to hear it. And Paul, uh, not so much. Because the Holy Spirit determines by his own grace how he's going to apportion uh, the nature of these gifts uh, to one another. So the body is formed by a lot of different people, gifted in different ways, doing different things by the one and the same Spirit that we are mutually growing to a maturity. So say you have a spiritual gift and you want to use it, and you're going to ask yourself, what is the purpose of using your spiritual gift in the body of Christ. Look again with me at Ephesians 4.12. Whatever your gift might be, let's say it's encouraging. I want to use my spiritual gift of encouraging. And why would I want to do that? The aim of using the gift of encouragement in this case is to equip 
the saints for the work of ministry. To build up the body of Christ. The, the purpose of using your spiritual gift is if you don't, the body of Christ will be limited in its preparedness to do God's work. The purpose of using your spiritual gift is not to demonstrate your maturity. Just to be honest with you, no one's interested. Right? I mean, are we all agreed? Yeah, there's nothing more exciting than a believer who wants us all to know how mature they are. Generally, if they're making that known, we know they're not. All right. The purpose of using my spiritual gift is not so others can know you got it dialed in. And not so you can have a good reputation. Not so that you can seem active. Not, not, not so that you can have, put on airs and, and people would be excited. Boy, they're very faithful. Oh, wow. Wow, that's amazing. Not, none of those reasons count. It's not in the Bible. The, the reason we exercise my, a spiritual gift is that I might, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, engage with a conversation with an individual, and they will, after that conversation, be better prepared to do the work of God. That is a miracle. That God would use people like us to equip one another. Normally what you do to train somebody is you get a subject matter expert, the expert, the pro, right? And he's going to tell everybody how it's done. And the body of Christ is completely different. You get a bunch of people who have no idea what they're doing. And in fact, not only do we not know what we're doing, if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't want to do it. That's Romans chapter 7, the good things I want to do, I don't do. The evil things I know I shouldn't do? Oh, those I do all the time. Great. Take all of those people. Stick them in a room. Are they going to get better at being like Christ? Well, the normal response will no, that's going to get worse. They're going to be a terrible influence on one another. Okay, good. Yes, you've been to church before. You know how this works. The Holy Spirit then works in us a miracle where he takes one guy who doesn't know what he's doing, and by a gift in his life, he invests in another guy who doesn't know what he's doing, and they both become more like Christ. It's, a, it's, an, ab, it's an absolute miracle. And this is the way in which a body of Christ moves to, towards maturity. This is, in fact, God's business plan for the church. A bunch of people who can't get their act together, depending on the Spirit who invest in one another that we might be more like Jesus, to train one another and prepare one another for the ministry. And what exactly is the ministry God has called the church to do? Go and make disciples. Not complicated. Very, very simple. Take people who are dead in their sins and, and lead them to Christ by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit and see them follow after Christ for their whole life. It's a very simple plan. This is what we're doing. How do we do that? We equip one another by investing in each other through the use of our spiritual gifts. The goal of using our gifts is what? Maturity. Maturity for who? The body of Christ. That the body of Christ might be mature, full of Jesus, full of unity, full of knowledge. This is not primarily concerned with our maturity as an individual. One, in, one author put it this way. Let me read what he says. In fact, a sign of immaturity is the disunity of the body of Christ. Often we tend to think, that think of spiritual maturity as only individual growth in the Lord. But in this passage, the emphasis is on the importance of body growth resulting in unity. 
Inversely, immaturity is individual growth, not shared. Did you hear what he just said? Immaturity in the body of Christ is individual growth, not shared with the body of Christ. The Bible is teaching us here, and I think this author is hitting on it, I can be as mature as, um, as possible. If I'm not sharing it with the body of Christ, I'm actually not as mature as I think. Because the mark of maturity in this passage is believers investing in one another that the body of Christ might be mature. Another author says it this way, the glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The body of Christ cannot be content to fall short of the per- perfection of the personal Christ. That is the, what he's saying is this. We cannot be content to dial in our Christian lives and not see the body of Christ grow to maturity. We can't be content with that. Christ is not content with that. Heaven forbid we stand before Christ and say, Christ, I did everything I was supposed to do. And, and, and he said, did you, did you share that with the body of Christ? Did you use what I did in your life to lead others to maturity? Well, God, haven't you met those people? Why would I do that? This is exactly what Jesus wants us to do, is grow towards maturity. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians. English is not my first language. Ephesians 4.14. The aim here is maturity, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. You also write down James 1.5 and Jude verse 12, where he says, we are to grow into maturity so that we are not so easily tossed back and forth by whatever is interesting this week. He's not talking about us merely as individuals. He's saying as a body of Christ, we stand firmly on what God has called us to do. Grow into the fullness of Christ that we can make disciples of Christ who will grow into the fullness of Christ. How is Jesus going to grow his church? He gives gifts. Secondly, he desires maturity, that we would use our gifts to grow in the body of Christ towards maturity. So I'm going to ask this question. I don't mean to offend you much, just a little. So opinions are like belly buttons, right? Everybody has one? It's good to have strong opinions. I I value strong opinions. You should have strong opinions. But in the body of Christ, we have to understand how opinions work. We have two options with opinions. I only see two options with strong opinions, and I'm going to give them to you again. If I offend you, I apologize. I don't intend to offend you. I intend to offend the guy next to you. A strong opinion in the body of Christ about this, that, or the other thing, whatever it is about the church that drives you nuts, a strong opinion in the body of Christ is one of two things. It is either a function of the Holy Spirit in my life that's creating in me a discontent that is reminding me I need to get in the game. The Spirit has gifted me to see a particular thing that other people aren't seeing, and we need to get after it. And so it's the Holy Spirit prompting me, say, you know what, I'm not going to sit back and wait and see. This needs to happen, and I'm going to lead that charge. So that's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit in our life. He creates a, a holy discontent in us, both about our own personal walk with Christ. We also look at the body of believers, and we say, this is missing. I need to figure that out. The Holy Spirit is moving and prompting in my heart. What's the other option? The other option is just disunity. When is this church going to ever get its act together? And we always have these arguments in our head about these opinions we have about what's wrong with the body of Christ. 
Why do we have these arguments in our head? Because we always win them. They're, they're amazing. They're the best kind of arguments. If you argue with your spouse, you need to learn to do that differently. You need to argue with them in your head. You always win those. Don't do that. That's terrible advice. Just, <laughs> it was a joke. You weren't laughing. I was, some of the guys were back there. Man, that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, my lands. We say, you know, this, the church just doesn't measure up. It's lame. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that. I'm just going to sit there and stew on that and maybe just snipe that into a couple of other of my close friends. Yeah, don't you agree with me? Don't you agree that we just, they just can't? Uh. And what's that? Disunity. Instead of saying the Holy Spirit is moving me by his supernatural power to engage with my gift to build up the body of Christ, instead I'm going to use my opinion to create this unity. And what we need to do there is say, God, that's yours. I'm going to let you have it, and I'm going to, I'm going to walk away from that. It's okay. It's okay to say, that's not my spiritual gift. That's just my, that's just my heart working. God, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to just, that's your deal. I'm going to let you handle that one. But one of the purposes of the spiritual gifts is to create unity in the bonds of love through humble service uh, to one another. All right, so we need to use our gifts. God calls us by his spirit to use our gifts that we might grow into maturity as a body of Christ. And what does it lead to when a body of Christ is growing uh, in Jesus? Now let's uh, finish up verse 15 and 16. I'm just going to read them again uh, to remind us. Rather, that is, rather than being tossed to and fro by deceitful schemes, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, that is Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when, when we're using our gifts together to serve one another in humble service, to put others first, Jesus Christ becomes both our source and our goal. He becomes the means by which we grow, and he also becomes the goal for which we're growing. We want Christ to grow in us, and we want to have more of Christ in us. That when the body of Christ is working properly, it says, the body grows and builds itself up by Jesus himself. Now look at verse 15. It says this, speak the truth in love. And those of you with the gift of exhortation just underlined it and highlighted it. I knew it. I've got to be the one to tell the hard truth. Well, you might need to be the one to tell the hard truth, but number one, why don't you underline again, in love in there. But secondly, he's not primarily speaking just of someone who is able to give somebody bad news and they take some delight in it. He's speaking the truth, and truth here is very specific to the context, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is we need to not merely just be boldly honest with one another. He's saying, I want you to speak the truth of the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another in love as a function of your spiritual gift. I want you to be thinking about how does the gospel apply to my life and my brother's life in this situation. It's not just merely speaking hard truth, it's speaking the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ in love to one another. There was a proverb that perhaps you've heard quoted before. It says, iron sharpens iron. As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. So I'm just going to add to that from this passage. Iron in sharpening iron is great, 
but grace is what keeps us from stabbing each other. So it's one thing to be sharpened. It's another thing to come, at, come after one another with those sharp knives. And he's saying, by the grace of God, I want you to tell each other the truth of God, that Christ saves sinners, and Christ has redeemed sinners like us, and speak to one another in love. Look over at 1 Corinthians 13. Perhaps the last time you've heard 1 Corinthians 13 reference was at a wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, if you'll notice, comes right after 1 Corinthians 12. I know we're plowing new ground here today, aren't we? It's critically important because remember, we were just in 1 Corinthians 12 while he was discussing the the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church, saying, use your gifts to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And now he's saying this in 1 Corinthians 13, with those gifts in mind, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I use my miraculous spiritual gift of speaking in any language I want to, and in fact, even in speaking in the languages of angels, and I don't love those who I'm serving, I'm no better than a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. Some of you would like the sun earlier on your house in the morning. So by faith, you move Roxyan from the east side of the valley to the west side of the valley, and now the sun hits your house earlier in the morning. If you have not love, your faith is useless, he is saying. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain how much? Nothing. The entire idea here is that as a body of Christ, we use our gifts to serve one another because of a deep affection for one another and for Christ. That is, we tell each other the truth, and we serve each other with with the gospel because our deepest desire is to express love and devotion to one another. The truth of the gospel is not arguing. The truth of the gospel is not uh, fighting over words and details. The truth of the gospel is to teach one another over and over again, Jesus saves sinners like us. Jesus will endure with sinners like us. Jesus will help correct sinners like us. Jesus is gentle with sinners like us. And this is, that's exactly what the Bible talks about over in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Don't be quarrelsome, but kind. Teach one another. Patiently endure evil. Correct opponents with gentleness. And maybe God will grant repentance to those that we correct. And maybe they will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. You've got a buddy who's caught in sin, are you going to tell him to come correct because good Christians don't do that naughty stuff? Or are you going to love him and say, why are you choosing that over Christ? Christ is so much better. Are you going to seek to prevent your buddy from sinning by telling him how shameful his deeds are? Or are you going to remind him again that his shame is covered over by the blood of Christ. Well, but if his shame is covered over by the blood of Christ, will he not just keep sinning? Two, two questions on that that I would suggest to you is this. Number one, how successful have you been overcoming sin based on shame and regret? 
oh, there's a successful group. Now I don't have anywhere to go with that. You do one of two things. You have to do one of two things if you're going to overcome sin based on shame and regret. Number one, you can do this. You've got to switch sins every now and then. Man, I feel terrible about doing that. I feel shameful. I'm going to switch over to something else. Now, you don't say that out loud, but that's what you do. Okay, I finally stopped doing this, and so now I'm going to switch over this. And then pretty soon, oh, wow, I feel shameful about that. The other option is, this is another good option people use, just lower your standards. No, God's actually okay with that. That's a popular answer. Or maybe we actually believe the Bible is true where it says, God has granted his kindness, so what? That he might lead us to repentance. See, we want to shame each other into repenting. Jesus wants to kind us into repenting. And maybe one of the things we need to hear more and more of in the body of Christ is how kind Christ is to us. That we might be moved to repentance, not because of shame, but because we have this good of a Savior. Perhaps God will use the gentle gospel truth-telling in the body of Christ to lead us to desire Christ even more. Jesus is our source. Jesus is our goal. Okay, a couple of questions for you. You can jot these down or just answer these in your own mind. Don't answer them out loud. That might be kind of awkward, which might be fun. So you can do what you want with that. Here's a question I might have for all of us. This is myself included. Do we have relationships in the body of Christ that lead us toward loving, fruitful conversations about the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you look at the conversations you have with fellow believers in the body of Christ, are they the kinds of relationships that lead toward talking about how good Jesus is? Having at least some in the body of Christ, I'm close enough that when I am overwhelmed with my shame and my sin, I can go to them and say, I need to hear the gospel today because I am covered over with my guilt. Tell me again how much Christ loves me. Do we have relationships that lead towards that? Or are our relationships in the body of Christ much like all of our other relationships? We just do it in a room like this. If Jesus is our source and our goal, our aim is to use our spiritual gifts to draw one another into conversations and relationships that are defined by Jesus saves sinners like us. Do we understand that what is being described here in Ephesians chapter 4 is countercultural? Let me explain. The gospel is the opposite of rugged individualism. The gospel is the opposite of stand on my own two feet. The gospel in the body of Christ is I might not even be the foot. I'm that bit of the ear that hangs down. I'm not In the body of Christ, by the power of the gospel, I cannot stand on my own two feet. I cannot be strong on my own. This is countercultural. Uh, Christians today, we love to stand on the corners and shout out to our culture how wrong they are on issues related to sexuality and issues related to marriage and issues related to all kinds of things. And the gospel here proclaims to our community of believers, you are living against the gospel in your rugged individualism. You don't get to be a Christian on your own. You don't get to, it's not an option in the Bible. This passage was written for 20th century Christians in the Pacific Northwest who happened to live in Southern Oregon. This is the, the air we breathe is how you doing? I'm going to be just fine. 
And this cuts against that and says the gospel has something better than us making it on our own. And if we're going to proclaim to our culture that they have some things wrong, we need the gospel to proclaim to our own hearts we've got this wrong. We depend on one another. We will not grow into maturity unless we depend on one another in the way this is described. Many of us are struggling today in our spiritual life, not because of our lack of discipline and habit, but because somebody else in this church is not fulfilling what God has called them to do. That's sad. It's countercultural. It's time to repent and say, God is kind even to us strong, independent Oregonians, that he can move us out of our individualism and make us once again mutually dependent on one another and the Lord that we might know the gospel better. Are we willing to serve others like Jesus? What kind of people does Jesus serve? Just the messy, not put together, uncouth people who struggle with sin and can't seem to get over it. Are we willing to serve the body of Christ like Jesus? Or are we only motivated to serve the body of Christ, especially those people who are really good at sending out thank you notes? I'm not judging the people who send out thank you notes. It's just you're amazing. But if we only serve others because we want to experience some appreciation from that, that misses how Christ serves. Remember, the, the definition of Christ's service was this in the Bible. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are we willing to serve others like Jesus did? The messy, the not put together, the uncouth, the strugglers. couple more questions you're probably wishing I would stop. I only have 12 more. Do I understand from this passage in the Bible as a whole that if the body of Christ exists only to feed me, I will be unhealthy spiritually? If the function of the body of Christ is to feed me spiritually, guaranteed I will be unhealthy spiritually. There is no possible way to have a relationship with the body of Christ which is one direction and not be unhealthy. The only way to have health in the body of Christ is to give and to receive in mutual dependence on Christ and one another. I must put to use what God has put into my soul, otherwise I will develop spiritual obesity. All right, last question. It's not really, but I'm, I just want to end before you all storm out. If my Christian life flamed out right now, not me, but you're asking yourself, don't ask about me. If your Christian life flamed out right now, just all of a sudden you've had it. Whatever it is, I'm done with it. I'm walking out. Would anybody in the church even notice? Is there anybody right now that their spiritual vitality is also mutually dependent with your spiritual vitality? Or if you flamed out right now and left and never returned, would everybody be hunky-dory? Because the way he has designed the body of Christ is if we flame out, it leaves a mark. And we don't like that idea, do we? But it's got to be designed so somebody can go out and it stays good. No, it's designed that we're not okay with that. That is, is my spiritual life in the body of Christ such that if I flame out, it's going to leave a mark and other people are going to be affected. If I could flame out of the church today and, and it would have no negative impact on the people around me, something's not right. I need to engage in relationships where we have mutual dependency with one another 
and on the Lord. Okay, good news. Every single one of us is called to engage in the supernatural power of God in the church, in the body of Christ making disciples. How do we live in a manner worthy of our calling? Is we take what God has done in our life and we put it to work in the lives of others. However we have gifted it, God has gifted us. God gifts each one of us differently. You should feel comfortable when you uh, see an opportunity that's outside of your gifting saying, you know what, no, I'm going to focus on a place where I'm gifted and could use God's strength to the best. Each part of the body of Christ must, must jump in to see his work done in our church. So that we might grow to maturity and we might accomplish his purpose here in the city of Medford. Three things to take away. You want to write things down? Here you go. Pray. Ask God to show you through your experience with him and his word and in serving him what your gifts are and to give, excuse you, excuse me, pray that he will give you opportunities to develop relationships in the body of Christ where you can use your spiritual gifts. Pray that God would give you a heart in the body of Christ not to just merely attend an event. You cannot connect, as we said last week, with an event. We connect with people. And God has called us to love one another, and let's pray together that God would give us opportunities in the body of Christ, put to use the gifts he has given us. Second thing, grow. Grow as a believer in your walk with the Lord. Grow in your love of Christ through the Bible and prayer. Grow in your love of Christ with others in the church. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling, meaning you see more and more the value of engaging your gift in the body of Christ in the world around us, and less value in the things of this world. Pray, grow, and finally, it rhymes, go. What moves you? What motivates you? What, what picks your heart up? You say, man, that would be so exciting. Well, jump in and, and get after it. Begin building into others. Make the goal of your spiritual life not your own maturity, but the maturity of the people around you. Around you. Take the things that you're already good at and engage with others in those things with a humble spirit being Christ in the lives of people around you. Pray, grow, and then jump in. Go.